Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with uh, Michael Wood. Michael has just written a book uh, called uh, Practicing Peace, Theology, Contemplation, and Action. Who, who is the publisher on the book? I've been reading it. I didn't notice who published it. Yeah, it's Whippenstock. Now, Michael, where are you located? So I'm located in Melbourne, uh, which is in southeastern Australia. If you ask me in the States where I'm located, probably by my location, you could get an idea of the theological or religious context that I'm uh, surrounded by. Is that true in Australia? I think to some extent it is, yes. Yeah. So um, I'm an Anglican or what in the US uh, is called Episcopalian. We're a very broad church, uh, so you find the whole range from kind of uh, Catholic-informed roots to evangelical Protestant Reformed strands. The Protestant Reformed strands are particularly strong in Sydney because of its um, history of colonisation and where it was colonised from. The rest of the country tends to be a mixture of all of those. That's what I was wondering. I I had a, a student, I think he was in Sydney, and he described that Sydney, that it tended to be very reformed, very fundamentalist. And of course, being from the States, I had no sense that, oh, well, in Sydney, it would be different than in Melbourne, but apparently it is. Yes, quite a phenomenon, actually. I've been reading your book, Michael, and finding it very interesting. But uh, just to kind of set the stage, for me, coming to a position of peace and nonviolence and understanding the gospel, uh, it was a long journey to get there, and not necessarily a painless journey, and so I was wondering if you could just kind of tell the story then of how you arrived where, where you have theologically. Mm. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me today, Paul. So I didn't say that before. I really appreciate the, the conversation with you. Um, I think the roots for me, I can track right back to when I was a child and um, didn't have any particular faith, but was like a lot of children, curious. And um, my parents reading me the ch children's illustrated Bible uh, as a bedtime story, and the, often the pages were filled with some fairly uh, graphically illustrated stories of wars and battles and you know, walls being brought down and countries being invaded, all in the name of God. And I thought, hmm, this doesn't quite feel right to me. I just had an instinctive sense that this was potentially problematic if God was a, a leading people into battle and being killed and so forth. But it sat with me as a discomfort for many years. And uh, when I eventually, in fact, I think it was a barrier to faith, actually. I thought, if this is the kind of God which is being portrayed here, I'm really not interested. But eventually, through various processes, did come to faith and started studying theology in my late 20s and thought I'd follow this question up. So I wrote, uh, we were given an option in one unit. I did to write an essay on anything we um, wanted to. And so I wrote an essay on violence in the Bible and how... Christians deal with that. So that was kind of the process of um, kind of deepening my reflection on it as an intellectual question. But it was really when I got into parish ministry several years after that, that it really became live for me in that I found 
the way that I was leading, which was the only way I knew, I just absorbed it from other people that I'd watched either in the business uh, community where I'd worked before coming into the church or within the church itself. The way I was leading was not particularly life-giving to me or to others. And I think I was doing violence to myself and to my family, not physical violence, but emotional violence through the the sheer stress of trying to lead in this way, which is a very top-down and hierarchical, the priest knows best kind of Mm. approach, you know, in uh, the Anglican Church in Australia, with that part of Australia where I was living, when we were licensed, we were given the Archbishop's license, which either had the word rector on it, which means ruler, Mm. or priest in charge. Um, So all this kind of language is loaded towards the priest being the one who sits at the top of a pyramid. For all our language around servant leadership and uh, so forth doesn't actually play out that way. This uh, completely undid me, you know, two or three years into my ministry. I, th- I think I was heading very rapidly towards depression. I thought this is can't be right. So it's kind of when I really became experiential for me, what um, violence, emotional violence could mean. So that's a kind of a bit of a trajectory there. You must have had a self-awareness that, even as a child, that I actually, I, I've always thought that if you just left children alone with the Bible, they would all be pacifists. <laughs> yeah. uh, because yeah, that, we, my parents, we kind of went to church and, you know, I became a Christian. I started reading the Bible on my own and I arrived at, as, you know, 13-year-old, 14-year-olds. Well, okay. But then I learned better, unfortunately. You know, I, I learned, oh, no, that, that we don't take Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount that seriously. I, I think it is a, a position that is just natural. At least in my experience, I had to be trained out of it. Yeah, that's a lovely expression, trained out of something, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Gandhi used to carry a copy of the, Beat- the, the Beatitudes around in his pocket. I don't know if that's apocryphal or... But, um, oh, I, yeah, he had that, uh, strongly influenced, you know, by by Christian teaching. The I know in your book that you're you're referencing Gerard quite a bit. I came to Gerard after I came to the view of nonviolence. But I'm I'm curious in your own experience, what role or what uh, is Gerard central or a kind of supplement to your understanding of peace. He's been very influential for me in helping me to understand how violence in any culture works, including in the culture of the Bible and all the cultures that are reflected through all that time span in which the Bible was being written. What what I'm wondering, you know, sometimes when people reference Gerard, I think a lot of people that are Gerardian become pacifists. But there is this kind of understanding of Gerard that in some way he's kind of omnicompetent. We can explain everything through Girard. I think part of it is is where people encounter Girard in their theological development. I certainly attach a great deal of importance to Girard. You know, I think Girard himself would limit the scope of his, you know, insight. Whereas I think for many people, this is a, a kind of resource that they can they're continually dependent upon. Yeah, I see him as being um, helpful in diagnosing the roots of violence in human desire. So Gerard, you're quite right, Gerard's been critiqued heavily by anthropologists for overreach, 
you know, in the history of the world and the history of cultures, because he often he one of his claims is that by the way uh, violence gets hidden in ancient cultures uh, is through the formation of myth, where original original violence actually kind of gets blotted out because it's too hard to look at. Uh, and and some anthropologists say, well, yes, where's your hard evidence for that? Because he comes at it from a literary point of view. But I think you can kind of separate a little bit that from the core ideas in a kind of an operation or a face validity sense that he comes up with, which is that violence is rooted in disoriented desire. And that's a deeply Christian spiritual perspective that is, doesn't rely on Gerard. We can find that through the history of the church. All the great spiritual writers have been interested in how desire works. And Gerard kind of adds another interesting flavour from slightly outside the system because he originally came to this not as a Christian but as an atheist. Interestingly, as he studied the Jew, uh, Jewish and Christian scriptures, he was converted and became a Catholic. So he was very interested in how the Jewish and Christian scriptures start to disassemble the scapegoating mechanism, which he had seen operational right throughout history. But the basic idea of desire was that we learn desire. We, 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 we think our desire is our own, but in actual fact it is copied or imitated from other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a huge problem in societies because if you and I want the same thing in the presence of scarce supply, we will become rivals of each other. Mm-hmm. And we will become very anxious and competitive. And after a while, we'll simply be imitating each other's anxiety and competitiveness and escalating tension until a point where we're fighting with each other. We've actually forgotten what we're fighting over. We've forgotten that we were fighting over this mm-hmm. shared object of desire. And now we're just imitating each other's anxiety. Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of a key idea which I play with. And I think when we see that, we see it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. In this, you know, we've entered a realm here. I think we, we often miss in theology. As we're talking about Christ and Christianity, we're talking about our human experience, and, and I think a universal human experience of envy, jealousy, rivalry, that as Christians, we can do an anatomy of these things and say, oh, we can we can look at this and understand where this comes from, and it need not consume our lives. And I think Gerard is a great entry into that. And very often it's not addressed theologically. You know, in your seminary years, maybe you had a better seminary experience than I did, but did, you know, somebody sit down and say, well, actually we can do an anatomy of jealousy and this is the way jealousy works. And here is the way that Christ addresses this basic human experience. I never had that experience. Did you? No, well, that... You're right, I wasn't introduced to it in my theological studies, although interestingly I was talking to uh, a colleague a couple of years ago who studied theology in South Africa, and they were given a big formation in this kind of stuff. And that, I wonder, is something to do with their culture. They've actually had to live with violence uh, right in their face for hundreds of years. Uh, And so they're really wrestling with that. Um, Mm -hmm. We think we're a peaceful country often. you know, bastions of peace even. And so maybe it's a blind spot for us. Americans have no illusions about being peaceful. (laughs) Uh, Peaceful or nonviolent Christianity. Uh, It may be different in Australia, but here that's a kind of, uh, outside of the peace churches, uh, that's kind of an offensive position, I think, for a person to take. 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's as strong as offensive, he- uh, strongly put here as being offensive, but I'd say it is not really on the radar as a central, as central to the gospel. And yet, when we look at it, we find it everywhere. Paul is all, is just constantly hammering on about peace and joy as being the fruits of the spirit. Maybe my my Christianity, my Texas background, you know, it was uh, the very very uh, nationalistic kind of Christianity that just was became part of my Bible college experience and my form formation. Took me years to get out of that, but I think that the one way of getting out of it is leaving this country. I think it's very hard for people that are steeped in this culture to even see an alternative. But and so Yes, that was, isn't that interesting? Yes, we get in, immersed in our own culture um, and start imitating it, which is exactly what Gerard talked about. It's just the truth. We don't know. An interesting part of your book, and we, we had talked about this a little bit, but you do, a, you do several things in the book that I would connect very much with a kind of Eastern Orthodox understanding. You talk about creation and redemption as being on a continuum. You talk about Christ as being present throughout history, in every period of history. I'm curious as to your background in that, or where that comes from in your your theology. Yes, um, I'm a bit of a uh, magpie when it comes to collecting, um, oh, that's a bird here, magpie, um, not sure if you have them. It's yeah, yeah. We actually, we, I've been watching a mystery, uh, a British PBS mystery, uh, the Magpie Mystery. So, ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so they, they have a habit of collecting shiny things. So, I think I've coll- I collect a lot of things. Sometimes, quite often, secondhand from their original sources of, in scholarship. Mm-hmm. I guess some of the people that have influenced me on that side from an Orthodox background are um, John Bear at Aberdeen University and. Um, Brad Jerzak, who used to be a Protestant, now Eastern Orthodox in Canada, and um, Chris Green is a big reader of, uh, from a Pentecostal background, actually, um, read these Eastern Orthodox scholars and um, this idea that, you know, we have to take seriously in the Christian tradition, if we believe in the, the Holy Trinity, that Christ is there at the foundation of the world through, through whom the world is created, we say in the creeds. So the nature of God as Christ-like, as, uh, we see that in Jesus, you know, um, Christ is visible in the flesh, and yet somehow that process of becoming in the flesh is intimately tied up in the life of God, that all of creation is uh, swept up into the Holy Trinity, and this is what redemption is, is, is um, that we get drawn into the life of the Trinity or first of all, God yeah, God does the work. God is the one who is drawing us into the life of God is the primary idea of um, in Eastern Orthodox theology of redemption. Uh, and so we are being brought into the process into that process of being made whole, being made complete, if you like, as Jesus is the complete human one. We see in Jesus the image of the invisible God, not only in God's divinity, but God's humanity. Uh, I may have first encountered it in Brad Jerzak, I'm not sure. It's a very simple idea that you reference and that just is makes a world of difference, and that is that we know who God is in Christ. That is, who is God? We have a Jesus-shaped God. What is the uh, quote exactly? Ah, uh, yes, well, it's a quote from John V. Taylor, who was an old uh, 
English bishop uh, who was led the Christian Missionary Society for many years. And um, he picked it up from Michael Bramsey, who'd been a... Actually, um, it's a quote which um, uh, John V. Taylor uses at the beginning of his book, an epigraph. His book was called The Christ-Like God. Mm-hmm. An interesting Brad Jerzak uh, writes The More Christ-Like God later as a kind of a testament to that, I think. He picked it up for this epigraph from Michael Ramsey, who was an English archbishop, and it is, God is Christ-like. In him there is no unchristlikeness at all. We cannot do that God is entirely Christ-like. It's not, in fact, if you really push the image, it's not so much that Jesus is like God, but God is like Jesus. Mm-hmm. That somehow God can't choose to be something unlike Jesus. Like, I, I'm Jesus on a good day, but I'm, you know, on a bad day, I'm Mars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, Dad really gets mad sometimes. Kind of that split in in uh, deity it's very split yeah and very like an, and can be very much like an alcoholic father in the in the way god is portrayed highly unpredictable and very dangerous yeah it's an obvious thing i mean why it seems like we should all know this and believe this that you know who god is is well we know that in, in christ but i think that again because of our theology because of the way that we're indoctrinated we just kind of naturally are. I, I think it's very unorthodox the, the the idea of splitting, you know, the father and the son and giving a different character. But nonetheless, I think that's the the tendency. After you got to be trained, I think, uh, to believe wrong stuff. Yeah, and trained uh, as to how to think clearly and consistently. And I I think this is the other thing that the orthodox and actually the ancient tradition of the church. Catholic, Anglican, Orthodox, um, the gift is that we're reminded through the liturgy every single week, through the structure of the liturgy, we're brought back into a reminder. It's an anamnesis and a, a move against amnesia to remember who God is and who we are through the struct, the words of the liturgy and the creeds and the boring process of reciting that week in, you know, week out every Sunday at the Eucharist is... Um, reminds us who God is. That's Christ-like. Supported by good preaching, uh, I guess it has to be as well, because we can, the preaching can completely muck it up (laughs) or make it, make it or break it. Yeah, yeah. We need reminding because we live in a world that's deceived and Christ as the truth is an alternative. And you you describe that in the book, Uh, an alternative logic, an alternative understanding over and against the delusion, I think. And, of course, it is a violent delusion that people are, are gripped by. I think that's right. Mm. You have, There's a concept that you're using that was new to me, and that is the notion of an open space. Could you describe that? That's even in your email address. That What is so key about that? Yeah, so um, it's a credit. Yeah, right. It, it, yeah, yeah. Thank you for reading the book. It's uh, absolutely a key idea that just re- runs all the way through. Timothy Radcliffe said, um, "The glory of God always shows up in an empty space." I was absolutely captivated by that phrase, and it's related to Paul's idea in Philippians that God's character is fundamentally chaotic, meaning uh, humble or self-giving or self-emptying. That the process within the Holy Trinity of God loving the other, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Holy Spirit 
flowing, this love flowing between them is fundamentally a canotic process of constantly letting go to make space for the other. And yet, because it's so, that could become neurotic if it was just, you know, like the kind of martyrdom of service where I just let myself go all the time and completely uh, forget who I am. But I am in the, also in the process of being filled. So I'm letting go and I'm receiving. So there's this movement between giving and receiving within the life of God. So what this actually does is that it is constantly creating an em- a space, an empty space, if you like, into which the love of God is being poured. That sounds a bit abstract and you know, highfalutin and theological. In practical terms of relationship, what you are doing, the gift you are giving me at the moment is creating an open space into which I can speak. And although this is slightly one way because it's the nature of a podcast, if we were sitting in the lounge room having a conversation, it would be a little more uh, shared of, you know, you would ask me a question, then I might throw it back to you and ask you a question, and then this is kind of dance between us as we have the conversation. We are constantly creating space for each other. And in that process of space creation, we form us into human beings, you and I, mutually shape each other through that what we could call a dialogic process a dialogic space so dia means across logos making meaning so we make meaning you and i make meaning in the space between us i love that idea that and again you're naming something there that i had not heard it described as well as you just described it and the way that you describe it in the book and that is that in dialogue, in conversation, you know, for years in the classroom, and I, I think people don't know how to have a conversation very often. They don't know how to make space for other people. I mean, that that is a tragedy. And the way that we have relationships with people, you know, when I think about having a theological conversation, it's not the the theological aspect to it as you've named it, I think is this making space. It's listening to the other, hearing what they're saying, and you build a conversation. You you enter into a dialogue, and that's, yeah, it, it's just wh- who we are. You could almost say that our capacity for making space for others is determinative of, of who we are as people. And the, mm-hmm. the incapacity to do that and, and of course, what I'm describing theologically, a lot of us know how to argue. We know how to knock down or drink, you know, a lot of violent language actually in, in a surrounding conversation. What you're describing is a peaceable way to have a relationship with other people. Yes. Yeah, I think it is. And um, you're right, particularly in the West, we're very formed in this kind of uh, debate type of thinking which in itself is not bad because that can really you know that language of debate in the classroom the university has value in really sharpening up our thinking you know the combative nature of it yet it can only get us so far i don't think it can get us to peaceful living in community it might help us to sharpen up an idea about questions of scientific fact for example or philosophical reasoning and be quite re- useful, but it's not going to help us to live in harmony with each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
That's a, a beautiful part of your book. For that alone, people should go out and, and get this book. And I, I think the, the capacity, what, you know, we're having a, a, the conversation here is about pretty ordinary things. But I think part of it is we're describing and naming things. You know, what is the human desire? What's the shape of the anatomy of jealousy? And then how do you have a relationship? How do you have a conversation? That when we say the word peace, or we say the word nonviolence, I mean, that's what your book is about. You're describing how we enter into this peaceable world. And so maybe just a, as a kind of, you talk about a, two logics of violence and peace. If you could describe then how those two things are in contrast. So the logic of violence and the logic of peace. I was very struck, uh, even as a young person reading the Bible, for the first time and it started when I was wrestling and struggling with what it would mean to be a Christian. Um, I remember this phrase in John's gospel where Jesus says, I give you my peace, not as the world gives. So that somehow the peace of Christ was different to the peace of the world. And this is where I found Gerard very helpful because Gerard made the observation that we as human beings, our natural logic is to try to establish peace by driving out unwanted influences. So if, we, if, if as a, a community we have a destabilizing influence there, we're all very anxious and we can restabilize our peace of a kind by getting rid of that person over there who's a real problem, who's creating all the issues. We see this in churches all the time. As soon as people start talking about, as a group, talking about how that person over there is a real problem, you can, my alarm bells start going off. I think, ooh, okay. I wonder if we're moving into a skateboarding modality. We think you and I can be together because we're together in disliking or hating or excluding or punishing, yeah. demonizing or scapegoating or victimizing that person over there. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon, even if we don't actively drive them out, they'll get the message in a thousand different subtle ways that they're not welcome. They'll be screened out of conversation. They'll be ignored. Mm -hmm. you know, they'll have the back turned on them. I think in the, I'm told uh, it's not such a big tradition here um, in Australia, but I'm told that in part of the world you're in, there's a thing called shaming, is there? Uh, and, you I know, can't... I was a missionary in Japan for 20 years, and that is very much part of Japanese uh, culture. And I okay. think what, and what you're describing is now taking place on social media. Uh, yes. That, that people, in other words, an experience that I thought was unique to Japan has become pervasive on social media here. That Yeah, the idea of a, a, a shaming. You know, in Japan, of course, the suicide rate is one of the highest in the world. And now we have people killing themselves in this country because of being shamed in the social media. You know, shame is a, something you experience in the, in the eyes of other people. It's not a peculiarly Asian or Japanese experience. You know, uh, Ruth Benedict talked about shame and guilt cultures. I've, I've come to the conclusion we're all shame cultures. We're all that shame in some way is at the root of negative human emotions and is a very strong controlling element in the shaping of, of people. Certainly in Japan, but I've seen it here now too, that, that you conform. In Japan, there's a saying that the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Uh, mm. 
And I think that's true here now, uh, that, that people are just forced into conformity. And it's a very strong thing that, that people do. And, it, and it's a natural thing to do, I think, on social media is, you know, to immediately uh, go into a kind of uh, antagonistic shaming mode, yeah. Yeah, so we we have a frame here called the tall poppy. The tall poppy gets chopped off, yes. Um, sorry to come back to your question. So that we can make peace uh, through uh, of sorts. It's not really peace. It's kind of like just an absence. Of, it's a temporary relief of anxiety. And that's the, that's the I guess, what we might call a culture of violence, uh, whereas the culture of peace that Jesus gives is probably drawing on the Jewish word of shalom that, Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the way in which, as a community, we deal with conflict. Conflict is natural because we inevitably value different things and get invested in different things, and it activates all our defence buttons, and we end up, you know, being in anxiety with each other. At that point, the question becomes how we manage deal with that. Mm-hmm. The great breakthrough of the gospel, which Paul saw brilliantly, is that. We can't actually think our way out of our dilemma because it's invisible to us. And Gerard said the same thing. The whole scapegoating mechanism is entirely invisible to us when we're doing it. That's partly why it's so powerful. It's unconscious to us. We can exclude others with 100% self-righteousness and Mm self-holiness. And that's what St. Paul or Saul did. He, with 100% religious justification as a Pharisee of Pharisees, he murdered Christians or oversaw their murder. And it was only when the kind of the God of peace breaks through that ego-generated and yet also unconscious mechanism of his own culture of violence that he recognises himself as a violent man. I mean, it's a huge, that's a huge transformation for him. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. You know, while I was a violent man, Christ broke through to me. Thank God. Take that out of the gospel. Take peace out of the gospel. I'm not sure what you have left. It's entirely, <laughs> you know, it's absolutely, it's hard to see what is left because it is a gospel of peace. Unfortunately, what we're, again, what we're describing is a system of violence that we're all inducted into that controls our lives and that we're not aware of. We're not, we're not aware of these shaping forces and this is the revelation of Christ exposing these principalities and powers, these structures that would make us killers, that would, in the case of Paul, uh, but in the case of all of us, the society shapes us to take up not the cross of Christ, but the cross of nation-states, the cross of violent organizations, the soldier laying down his life is, in this misconstrued understanding, equated then with Christ laying down his life, as if someone going out to kill. And that's obvious, you know, in the case of war or in the case, but I think what you're describing is, oh yeah, but we do that at many levels, that we we kind of have this antagonistic relation. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And um you know, it's so subtle, isn't it? Because we can even, and I have, and uh, sometimes do, we could um, inadvertently scapegoat the military. You know, somehow violence is over there. They're violent people, but right, I'm not. Right. Mm-hmm. 
So we constantly have to be bringing it back into our own heart and saying, and asking the systemic questions. What are, What is it about the way as a system and as a culture we exist that even makes us think that it's okay to spend this kind of money on a military system so that we're not scapegoating individual soldiers who with all good and honourable intent lay down their lives for their brother or sister, say, which at, it, at its heart is such a honourable thing and yet as a system generates such tragedy. Mm. You know, I don't want to scapegoat this young 18-year-old who really steps up, you know, courageously and yet somehow is bound up in a system which is just built on violence. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to na- it's hard territory to navigate, but I think you're right. We have to bring it back to ourselves and say, how am I violent? How does my violence play out day by day? Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do in the book, more than critique entire systems, is to try to bring it back into our own lives. Say, so how can I contribute to peace? No, we've got to in- practice this thing. It's a discipline. The practice of peace, yeah. Yeah, and that's in the title, right? Practice. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. yeah, we have this notion that we don't really need to be trained in Christianity because oh, well, Christianity is a private belief. Mm. But I, I, but I think again, well, actually, this thing's pretty hard to do, and to accomplish it, uh, we need to be shaped. We need to be disciplined. We need to be trained. You use the example, I think, in the book of Martin. You know, the the peace marchers in the civil rights movement. You know, they actually went out. They knew they were going to put themselves in situations where they they would be attacked physically and violently, and they prepared for that. I think that as Christians, unless we train, we're trained, unless we're discipled, unless we understand the gospel of peace is over and against a world of violence, I'm not sure that we, it's not something that just comes to us naturally. I agree. I think we it doesn't come naturally. Because at these mechanisms that Gerard diagnosed so well, which is that we're kind of locked because of um, our desire is formed through the desire of others, so we are imitate. Our desire is shaped imitatively. We will, with one hundred percent certainty, end up with escalating anxiety, escalating violence, and a need to defuse that through some kind of scapegoating mechanism. That's just the way the the kind of psyche works in the absence of some kind of converting influence, which in Christian language we would say about the work of the of the Spirit, Christ's Spirit working on us to convert the heart so that we can see it and so that we can be converted and we can choose to live in a different kind of way. Yeah, I, I like that. And once you see, you know, the almost the sheer impossibility, that's <laughs> the wrong word, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from the power of God to practice peace, then you understand, oh, this is what this gift of the Holy Spirit is about. This is what this discipleship is about. Otherwise, I don't know what you do with it. Yeah, yeah it's very practical. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to another uh, word that you use, and I found it very interesting, travail. You talk about scriptures reflect travail. Can you describe what that means? Yeah, I think I might have got this from Gerard as well, actually, but I can't put my finger on where. Um, even scripture is a kind of a, a journey of humans trying to extract themselves from this scapegoating mechanism, that the whole story gives us this kind of picture of three steps forward, two steps back. We're reaching into or responding to the peace of God, and yet we're constantly falling back into 
this kind of scapegoating mechanism which comes so easily to us that somehow that person over there is to blame for my anxiety or our you know you and I having argument with each other and suddenly you realize actually it's not our problem it's that prop person's problem over there that's creating all the problems and then we unify against that person that when you look at it this shows up right through the scriptures it's kind of lurching between the peace of God and it's not just a New Testament Old Testament thing where you don't want to fall into that pattern that you know right through the scriptures we find this movement between peacemaking and lurching back into scapegoating and so even the scriptures are a, a process of travail which diagnoses and reflects back to us the human condition and the human problem it may have been in the context of sacrifice you know that there is a portion of scripture that and of course in a Girardian sense, that, that this would stand over and against another portion, over and against sacrifice. But the prophets say in one instance, well, in the voice of God, I never desired any sacrifice. That is, there there is a tension in Scripture, not just with that, but with many things, that you have different voices. Yeah, and I think it might have been Gerard, actually, uh, who talked about this, even the Scriptures themselves as being a process of travail. You know, there's three steps forward, two steps back. It's not language he uses, but others have used that. You know, constantly trying to extract ourselves from this process of scapegoating. So, you know, we generate even fascinating little rituals like the scapegoat. What, bring the uh, um, animal into the village. Everyone pours their sins onto the back of the animal, whip it off into the wilderness, and our sins are carried out into the wilderness. That's where the idea of the goat scapegoat you know, mm. the goat is driven out into the wilderness and carries all the sins out there into the wilderness on, on its back which is then picked up really in the idea of christ's sacrifice so we generate these rituals to help us and we're not even quite sure why we're generating these rituals but it's pretty brilliant psychology when you think about it you have some discussion questions in the book and one of the discussion questions on this topic kind of captured me and I wanted to turn the question around to you. It's your question, but let me ask you. <laughs> Uh-oh, here we go. What would you say to someone who says, I like Jesus, but I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament? I had a naughty little thought went through my mind there and said, have you read the Old Testament from beginning to end? Uh, it was a little bit naughty because they might have. I think you've got to admit that you find the violent human instinct running through the Bible from from Genesis to Revelation. And you also find peace running right through. So, for example, in the beautiful Joseph saga, which is you know, absolutely foundational for the Jewish people and for us, um, ends with this great act of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. You see these stories through the Hebrew scriptures, and which, by the way, are the Christian scriptures. You know, when, when the um, early church talks about the scriptures, it's talking about what, the Hebrew scriptures, some, what is sometimes called the Old Testament, which is not a helpful phrase, but they're, they're seeing the Christ story running through the Jewish scriptures. So the God of peace is the God who was always there from the very beginning, seeking reconciliation and peace. And we find that story of reconciliation and peace running through the Hebrew scriptures and, and reverting back two steps sometimes. And then one step forward, you know, it's, uh, the prophets are always having to call people back to faithfulness in God and, you know, reorient their desire, which is a very Gerardian expression. And all of that's running right through from the very beginning. This is, And this is where the Eastern Orthodox tradition helps us a lot, is that there, 
saying that Christ was always there, was the water in the rock for them. Christ was always present right through that story. And, we, and then you say, well, how do we find Christ? Well, Christ is the God of peace. So wherever we find God trying to bring peace out of violence, you can say there was Jesus. There was operating right through from the very beginning. I'm not sure that I've gone off track on your question, actually. No, you're, um, you're, you're saying something very profound here. You've come to this a profound understanding. I, I don't know that I could have articulated this just even in recent time, apart from understanding the idea of rule of faith, how, how is it when they're talking about the scriptures in the New Testament, they're talking about the Hebrew scriptures as the Christian scriptures, and the way they're yeah. reading it is through the gospel. Mm. And that is the rule of faith. That is that the way that you understand the Bible is through the gospel. And again, yeah. that's such a simple I mean, at one level, it seems like obvious. Well, of course we read the Bible through the lens of Christ, through the lens of the gospel. But again, I, I think we've not understood that in some way, or at least I, maybe I'm just slow. <laughs> I, I missed that. Well, it's all about Christ. It's not as if we divide it up or that there's different things happening. No, the whole thing is about Christ. And yeah, and absolutely. I think that's the, Christ, uh, the Christian testimony, which is not the way everyone would read the Bible, including Jews, you know. So we've got to be gentle with that. But I think part of the remedy, if you like, is remembering that Jesus is a Jew, which we so easily forget. He's a rabbi, so he's mining his own tradition, as is Paul, you know. Um, it's a, saturated in Jewish thinking. And often the Jews actually proclaim the gospel to us so much better than Christians do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't we have liked to be a fly in the wall, if you like, when Jesus was doing that Emmaus walk, where he spends the entire day with those two disciples, teaching them <clears throat> about himself in all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, saying, this is where I am to be found. This is where... The Christ-like God can be found right through the story. I would have loved to have been that walk, the Emmaus walk. <laughs> and I guess the the question, and and I'm not sure the answer to the question is, do we have the content of that conversation laid out more or less in the New Testament? Great point. I think that's exactly what we have. Yeah. Again, putting that together, that here is our interpretive key. Here is the rule of faith that, oh, this is about me, Christ says. And then that makes sense of it. And this then is a departure, and you mentioned this, about our interpretive method, that our interpretive method can be violent. Yeah, the way, so question we often don't look at is um, how do we read the Scriptures? And even the choice to read its literal history every step of the way is an interpretive choice. That the, people don't like hearing that, but it simply is. And I think I talk about, like drawing a bit on Chris Green, he lays it out really well, four or five different ways or mindsets with which we can read the scriptures. But as Christians, our mindset has to start with the crucified and risen Lord. God is Christ-like in whom there is no unchrist-likeness at all, that that's our interpretive starting point. So if it doesn't, if God doesn't look like the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, we probably haven't read the story the way 
God is inviting us to read the story. What's well, what it's what um, Bart saw, Karl Bart saw that uh, the catas- the catastrophe of the first Second World Wars was rooted in a fundamental misreading of scriptures. I mean, the stakes are huge. He said, you can't create God, a warlike God, which is what the, the Nazi regime did, out of Jesus. You have, to, you have to be doing something else in the way you read your Bible. So is it through Bart that you've gotten this understanding? Yeah, and, not, and by the way, I'm again, I haven't read his 10 volumes. of. He's incredibly hard to read, so I'm relying on interpreters often. A Christocentrism, you, yeah. Yeah, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, you know, the, that, the core idea that um, if we don't start with Jesus, we're going to end up somewhere with big problems in our understanding of the character and nature of God. Mm-hmm. And he's just drawing that. He's very wordy, as you know, you know, if you <laughs> hard to read and very wordy. Mm-hmm. But he's basically a preacher of the gospel, which is that start with Jesus and you will probably stay on track if if he's your interpretive key for understanding what God is up to and who God is. It's very hard to turn Jesus into a violent man. Mm-hmm. I haven't been like I haven't found a way of doing it. Have you? <laughs> well I uh, again that this may be the characteristic of the American church that you've been spared. But you see when Jesus cleansed the temple he used, uh, oh, we, we see there that he uh, used uh, violent means, I'm, I'm the devil here, and that we can then uh, support our use of uh, defensive meth- methods, uh, I guess up to and in, in including nuclear weaponry. In other words, uh, that there is a, a desperate attempt, I think, in the American church to make Jesus into a warrior kind of messiah we have preachers that you know say i would never worship uh a messiah that i could be or that that uh yes i've heard that yeah oh it's just atrocious but and if you're not part of this culture you may think oh that that is that is so anti-christ but unfortunately i'm afraid that we are now especially in this era in this country that a violent jesus a violent god and a violent christianity is the main option it is what i would call a fascist option in other words christianity at this point in this country is one of the primary means of supporting the rise of a right-wing fascism Uh, very paradoxical isn't it and very such an inversion um yeah and so the gospel is in many people's eyes what we're describing here the peace of the gospel is patently untrue because i think people are so steeped in violence that what is determinative of truth is if it works and we know that violence works and we know this mamby pamby you know talk about peace and nonviolence that's completely unworkable and therefore cannot be true. Yeah, so it becomes instrumental if, if we think it works. When we dig down, we know that it kind of works at a, at a level, but at an extraordinary human cost. But it actually doesn't work long term because <laughs> it can't create the conditions of peace. 
it works to destroy people's lives. Yeah. The last question I'd like to ask you, and it, it really is the final portion of the book, but I think it's a key part of the book, that you talk about prayer and the role of prayer in your life and the role of prayer in peacemaking. Can you can you describe that? Yes, I think it's crucial. Um, I talk about that in the chapter on, in the section on contemplation. I think as I've grown older, I've become more and more. Oh, actually, I was originally, but it's really as I get older, much more so the uh, drawn into the practice of contemplative prayer that is such a part of the Christian tradition and yet not taught and practiced as widely as it could be. Sometimes called meditation, but it's more, that's a word which is commonly more of an Eastern word. And our, our word is contemplative prayer, which is to simply be quiet in the presence of God, to become aware of our own internal violence uh, so that any kind of peaceful living in the external world has to originate from some kind of interior condition in which we notice and give to God our own violent tendencies of scapegoating, demonising, control. So any practice of contemplative prayer, which usually there's all kinds of approaches, but you know, commonly it might be focusing on the breathing or using in the Eastern Orthodox tradition a prayer word of some kind, like Maranatha, Hebrew word, uh, Aramaic word in the New Testament that Paul uses, meaning come Lord, or the Lord has come. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, they focus on a phrase, um, Jesus Christ, living son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a much longer mantra. But through these quiet processes of settling ourselves, we immediately become aware of the narratives that we're running in our brain, which are usually about being right, <laughs> how somebody else is wrong, how I failed to win over the latest argument, how I need to get exercise control over my neighbour, about how I'm going to kind of win in the next parish council meeting. You know, all these fantasies which are running at a subterranean level, we suddenly notice. And we notice, so, ah, so there you go. There's my latent violence, operational and active in my unconscious, even when I didn't notice it being there. And so every time we notice that, we simply come back to saying our prayer word or our mantra, mantra is an Eastern word, our prayer word, our focus, which is to reorient ourselves to God, say, Jesus. Sometimes people just use the word Jesus. This process of contemplative prayer is the is the way in which we invite God to create the conditions of peace, Christ-like peace within us, which will then work its way out in our daily life. Because in the absence of that kind of prayer, if we're all trying to do it by heroic effort, the risk is that it just becomes another journey of the ego. And then I can attack you for not being a peaceful person. Right, right. <laughs> then we've got an ironic situation, haven't yeah. we? Yeah. Yeah, I Michael, in, in reading your book and meeting you, I see re reflected uh, things that I, I said this in the beginning that we've arrived at a very similar understanding. But boy, it's for me, it was a long time coming. I'm just curious. You've put this together so beautifully in the book, and you've encapsulated it. At least my impression, and this is what one of the impetuses you described. This is not necessarily in Anglicanism. It's not necessarily in the structure of the hierarchy of the Anglican Church. No, definitely not. <laughs> that it's not given to this understanding. Is that true? Yeah, I think it's. I've I've tried. I think it, I've tried to honor the gospel of peace. Tried to draw a picture of how it's grounded in my experience and my story. It's come out of that. 
and draw on such a, a wonderful range of people who are coming to similar conclusions, such as yourself and, you know, so many others. Uh, so I think it's not the gospel of peace finds its articulation in all denominations and strands of Christianity, not to mention every other, other religion. You know, imagine Christ is showing up all over the place in the atheist and secular worlds and the other traditions. But as Christians, which is my frame of reference, we need to say, where is Jesus showing up in the Christian tradition? All over the place. Mennonites, Catholics, Protestants, uh, Anglicans. Uh. <laughs> and I, I would guess that whatever our context, I, I don't suppose that even a good Mennonite, this is easy or it comes to us naturally, uh, that there is no context in which this is not a, a discipline. It's over and against the, the powers that be and probably is over and against the context in which we all find ourselves. Yeah, I want to put a shout, you're right, I want to put a shout out to um, Douglas Campbell, actually, a scholar at Duke who's written um, a couple of very fat books on port and um, is a New Zealander, Douglas Campbell. He, um, he has a lovely image in his book on Paul where he talks about, he does this with his students in a lecture theatre where he'll put on some really... Aggr aggressive, shouting, noisy, heavy metal, plays it on the stereo, and then on the other side, then he puts on a little bit of bark or something and gradually turns up the volume on the bark and turns down the volume on the heavy metal and kind of, he says, we uh, the way in which we live is actually kind of, it's like we've got these two pieces of music playing simultaneously, and it's a matter of, this is happening for all of us all the time in every culture. And that the music of the gospel, which is a beautiful music, sometimes gets drowned out by the noise of violent culture. But our job is to tune in to the beauty and the, the joy and the, the peace of the gospel of Christ, to pay attention to that music, piece of music, which seems to me a lovely and a very non-violent image to way of thinking about where we place our attention. Sorry, that thought just came to me in response to what you were saying. Yeah, it's a beautiful image, and I've, I've interviewed Douglas Campbell a couple times. Ah, great. Actually, I'll, I'll contradict what I just said. It seems like that <laughs> there there must be an advantage being from New Zealand in some way. I don't know. It's in the air. <laughs> it must be, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, he, he is a profound thinker, and as uh, just uh, the image of uh, the, a gospel of peace, just, yeah, it resonates in what he does. Maybe true in Australia. Oh, I think we've got our own issues and problems, you know, and particularly, <laughs> um, you know, in our treatment of Indigenous people, which is, our, you know, that's where our violence has played out big time culturally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Michael, this has been such a, an interesting conversation. And tell us again, then, all the basic information on the book, if we want to buy your book. The name of the book is? So, uh, Practice in Peace, um, Theology, Contemplation, and Action. And it's uh, Wickensocks, the publisher, um, can be obtained more cheaply uh, in the Kindle format via Amazon. I think I bought it in Kindle. It was nine bucks or so. Well, yeah. Thank you for the conversation, and it's certainly nice meeting you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Paul, and you, you know, the pleasure of being interviewed by someone who's read the stuff and has got great questions to ask, and I've enjoyed the conversation, so thank you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, 
please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.